Okay, this week we have the privilege of studying Parshas Vayeshev. Parshas Vayeshev. And I'm not going to say it picks up where last week left off because I don't want to be ridiculed by you. But also because this week's Parsha, to a certain degree, does not pick up where last left off. It's kind of a new topic and it's a real transition. We referenced it, we alluded to it last week. Vayeshev Yaakov Be'eretz Migurei Aviv Be'eretz Kenan. That Yaakov dwelled in the house of his father, in the land of Canaan, in the land of Israel. And Rashi alludes, we mentioned it last week, Bikesh Yaakov Leishev Bishalva, that Yaakov only wanted was some peace and tranquility and serenity. He wanted to retire. He had a difficult life, a tough life. He had put in his time. He had gone through his challenges. And now he just wanted some peace and quiet. But what happened? Because Baruch the Almighty had different plans. And God visited upon, God visited upon uh, Yaakov instead Rogzosha Yosef, this horrific episode where his beloved and treasured son Yosef disappears. What's so bad? What's so wrong? The little peace and tranquility we spoke about last week. Yaakov's life is defined by the struggle. Yaakov's life is defined by the wrestling. The wrestling match he went through that fateful night with Saroshel Esav when he went back to retrieve the Pacham Ketan and the small jugs when he found himself alone. But really his entire life from the womb until the end of his life is that struggle. And being engaged in the struggle is not a concession. It's not a negative. It's not something that we bemoan. It's not something that we wish were different. The struggle is the evidence that we are alive. If we're struggling with healthy living and healthy relationships and healthy emotions and healthy attitudes and healthy spirituality, if we're engaged in the struggle, we're alive. And the moment we stop, it's all over. To a certain degree... To a certain degree, this is the essence of Hanukkah as well. We are creatures, tremendous creatures of habit. Shalva! I wake up in the morning and I'm pre-programmed for my day. Will I, wake, will I come early? Will I come late to Davening? Do I talk? Do I stop at Starbucks? Do I stop at Dunkin' Donuts? When do I drink my coffee? Who do I call? What do I, where, where do I check in? We're creatures of habit. So much of our day, the overwhelming majority of our day, is already pre-programmed, predetermined by the habits that we have formed, which will determine our behavior going forward. But when we're on autopilot, when we're creatures of habit, we're not alive. There's a lot more to talk about. This word hergel, which is habit. Targilena besorah secha. Sometimes there are certain habits which are good. When it comes to Torah, having hergel, targilena besorah secha, we say in our davening in the morning, being habituated to having an inclination and intuition towards study Torah, living Torah, that's a good habit. But other habits that put us on autopilot where we're not struggling, we're not alive, we're not growing, those are habits which we think are, are okay, but in fact, they're not. So the Gemara says that we're going to be in Hanukkah Sunday night. The mitzvah to light Hanukkah candles, the time allotted is, You can light candles until people are no longer out and about in the marketplace. The simple understanding of the Gemara, it's codified in halacha, it's applied differently today with artificial light. People are in the marketplace, depending where you live, till all hours of the night or the early morning. So what's the halachic definition of when you could light Hanukkah candles today? It's a separate topic. But the Gemara defines it as till people are no longer out and about in the marketplace. But the Tzvah says, read it differently. Not but The purpose of lighting the candles is to light up our lives is to not be walking in habit and rote through the darkness. You see, when, when Bikesh Yaakov Leishev B'Shalva, when I just want to enter a period of habit and rote and routine, then I'm walking in darkness. I'm cloaked in darkness. I'm not alive. The day blends into a week, blends into a month, blends into a year. I just have my routine of what I do. I go to the club, and then I go to the shear, and then I go to the lunch, and then I play the shuffleboard, and then I do the thing, and then I fall asleep, and then I start it all over again, and it's all the same habit, the same routine, the same rote. It just blends. If there's no struggle, if we're not trying to improve and grow and break through and be better and be different, then we're not alive. So the purpose of the Hanukkah candles, we're lighting the candles. And what's the shear? Until when can you light the candles? Says the Tzvah Semes, Until you break the routine, until you break the rote, until you break the habits, and you discover the real you, the new you, the better you, until we grow, until we realize that we should never be complacent. And I know I'm talking to an audience, at least not online, but here in person, who are largely, maybe I'm making assumptions here, but largely retired, and when we retire, maybe we feel, 
Just want some serenity, some tranquility, just some peace. Who, I just love routine. I, I, who wouldn't give for a routine? I sip my coffee, I read the paper, I go to the shir, I do that. A routine. And we want a routine that doesn't include. I go to the doctor's office, I wait four hours in the waiting room. I go for the lab, I go for the chair. I wait for the lab results, I go to the next doctor. That becomes the, the new routine. But we all, all we want, all we crave, all we aspire to is a routine that doesn't include the doctor's visits and offices and labs and procedures within our, within our routine. But I'm saying to this audience in particular, we're never retired. You're never done. That's exactly the opening of our parasha. Bikesh Yaakov Leishe Bashava. Yaakov just wants to retire. And the Rebbe Shalom says, there's no such thing as retirement in Judaism. You can, you can retire from what you did professionally. You can retire from your profession. But in life, there's no such thing as retirement. And I'll give all of you credit. You're here today because you're not retired from learning. You're here or from being entertained. Or We used to have free coffee. There's not even coffee anymore. So you really are here Lishma. But you're not retired from learning. Adarabba, when you're retired from your profession, you have more time not to lay shave b'shalva. All the excuse, who could go to a shir, who could open a safer, who could read, who could learn, who could volunteer, who could do, who could give, those excuses are out the window. Now you have the time. Now you have the time. So there is no shalva, there is no retirement. There's no Jewish concept of retirement. Maybe you're retired from your profession, but now you're just getting started with finishing the sechtas, or going to shiurim, or volunteering and showing up at the hospital, the soup kitchen, the tomchei shabbos, the chesed, the area, the, the sister, the, the woman's group, the whatever thing that needs work. There's no such thing as, there's no such thing as retirement. Chanukah, we light that candle, it illuminates the darkness, and we're able to see the potential within us to realize we're not done. So this Chanukah asks, what am I going to do differently? How this Hanukkah am I going to break through? What am I going to aspire? What are my ambitions? What are my goals for this year? That I'm not going to just be a creature of habit and rote. I'm not going to be satisfied or complacent with a routine, but I'm going to break that routine to introduce something new. A new shear, a new volunteer opportunity, a new... I'm going to introduce something new to break up that routine. Rabbi Salavitchik points out, and this is a continuation of the theme that we mentioned from him last week, that Vayeshev Yaakov Beret Migurei Aviv. At this point of Yaakov's life, it's not a coincidence that Yaakov is Vayeshev. The word Vayeshev is in great contrast, contradistinction to the word we saw last week, which was when Yaakov sends an emissary to Esav, he says, Let Esav know in Lavan Garti. I lived, I do a Garti versus Vayeshev. Rabbi Salavitchik pointed out already last week, not in love on Yashavti, I never fully moved in, I never unpacked my suitcase, I never assimilated or integrated. I was a stranger. How was it, Taryag Mitzvah Shamarti? I succeeded in never compromising my religious identity. How and why? Because I never fully unpacked. I never fully integrated. Now Yaakov's ready to unpack. Where does he unpack? Where does he integrate and assimilate? Etty's still here if anybody wants to... Giving Tuesday, she's still here if you want to run your credit card before she heads out. Thank you, Etty, for everything. So where does he unpack? Where does he move in permanently? Vayeshev Yaakov, where? Be'eretz Megurei Aviv. And Rabbi Salvechik here points out, the earlier parashiyas from Lech Lecha, I'm sorry, I'm reading the wrong one. Rabbi Salvechik points out, the word Vayeshev has the connotation of settling permanently. The verse strongly emphasizes it was Yaakov's intention to attach himself to the land of Israel. In the words of Rashi, the words Migure Aviv Be'eretz Kanan connote not merely a geographical location, but a love for the land that was both his father's and his grandfather's home. It's not just a geographical place you go to retire. When he's ready to settle down, where is it that he wants to attach himself? And there are many people who in retirement move to Eretz Yisrael. Now we're ready to go home. Vayeshev, I'm ready to unpack, to retire, to settle in. Where do I want my legacy? Where do I want to attach myself? Eretz Megurei Aviv Eretz Canaan. The stage was set for the covenantal promise of inheriting the land of Canaan to be realized immediately. Esav had left Canaan for Seir, clearing the way for Yaakov. Had the quarrel between Yosef and his brothers not taking place, then the exile foretold in the Brisbane of Asarim of oppression in a foreign land for 400 years would have been fulfilled through Yaakov's sojourn in Haran. God's arithmetic is different from man's. If the Egyptian servitude was in fact reduced from the promise 400 to 10, 
then Hashem could have further reduced it to 20 years that Yaakov himself was in exile, obviating the Egyptian exile entirely. The discord among Yaakov's children thwarted his plan to inherit Eretz Megurei Aviv. We were exiled once again. And what led to it all? This week's Parsha. Until now, the Rav also points out, from Lech Lecha through Vayishlach is the relationship, the battle, the conflict, the tension between the Jew and the non-Jew. We have Avram and Paro, and we have Avram with the kings at war, and Avram and Yitzchak with Avimelech, and Yaakov with Esav. So until now, Sefer Bereshus has talked about the Jews' role in the world. How do we identify? How do we relate to? How do we interact with? How do we coexist with the non-Jewish world? With peace treaties, with deals, sometimes with war, sometimes with covenants. But now, from Vayesha till the end of Sefer Bereshus, we're not concerned with the Jews' struggle with the non-Jew. Now we turn to the Jew's struggle with, with the Jew. Our own internal battles. And it's tragic. We should read Parshas Vayeshev with a tear in our eye and an ache in our heart. Because says the Rav, that bris ben absarim, the obligation to be in servitude, would have been fulfilled. Hashem would have reduced it 400 to 210 to 20 years. Yaakov would have paid that debt. And we would have been done. Eretz Megurei Aviv, Eretz Canaan, settled in Israel permanently. Abes HaMikdash, Eretz Yisrael, Am Yisrael, Torah Yisrael. Our destiny would have been fulfilled. And what always gets in the way of our destiny? What always gets in the way of our dream for peace and harmony and serenity and permanence? What always gets in our way? Not the first half of the Sefer Bracious. It's not the relationship with the outsider. If there is a spike in anti-Semitism, if there's a hatred of the Jew, it's a reflection of our own internal intolerance for one another. There's nothing that the anti-Semite latches onto more than when the Jews themselves are struggling, are critical, are hateful, are negative, are labeling, are judging, are marginalizing. That's what they latch onto. So the second half of this Sefer Bereshus, Parshas Vayeshev, is beginning with that horrible story, and in fact, indeed, is a horrible story. It indeed is a horrible story. And it led us to that next exile. Yosef ends up, Yaakov just wants to go home. Eretz Megurei Aviv, Eretz Canaan. We could have been there permanently. But where do we end up at the end of Sefer Bereshus? Instead, it should have been Shivam Nafesh, it should have been 70 people who are promulgating an enormous family, Growing and taking over all of Eretz Canaan, all of Israel. Where are we instead? We're in Mitzrayim, we're in Egypt. We're still in exile today. It's all an extension of this original episode. And every time we see it, it stems from here. The Meshachachma writes that. The Meshachachma writes in Sefer Vayikra that every Jewish suffering that has happened through the millennia, every, every episode of Jewish suffering has all been a result of this original conflict. The Sinas Chinam was never fully conquered or purged from our midst. And we continue to suffer from it. We continue to struggle with it. And says the Meshechachma, because of that, everything, every episode, every expulsion, every pogrom, every crusade, every, every episode of anti-Semitism is the result of, stems from, that being dislocated from our home. From our home. Yaakov just wants to go home. Eretz Megurei Aviv, Eretz Canaan, we end up in Mitzrayim. We quote often the commentary on the Rambam. The Rambam talks about at the Pesach Seder, I know we're up to Hanukkah, but the Rambam says at the Pesach Seder, when we eat the karpas, where does karpas come from? We dip the karpas in the salt water. Why are we dipping in what is karpas and where does it get its name? And the parish and the Rambam, it doesn't even have a name, the parish and the Rambam, I'm sorry, it's Rabbeinu Manoach, it does have a name. Rabbeinu Manoach and the Rambam write, comes from our parsha. Karpas, kesonas pasim. And why are we dipping it? Because we begin the Seder, before we celebrate the freedom and the liberation of the Seder night, we remind ourselves how we got there to begin with. You know why we have to sit and drink four cups of wine and eat matzah and eat maror? Why is it that we're even in a position to having to be celebrating liberation? Liberation from the oppression of Egypt. Why are we in the position to celebrate being liberated? How did we get there to begin with? We dip the karpas, the ksonas pasim, in the salt water. It all began with the act of dipping. 
the favoring of Yosef with this multicolored coat, and they dipped it in the blood in order to deceive their father, to say Yosef was killed by a wild animal, this is the blood we found on his coat. We reenact not only the happy part of the story, we don't just reenact the, the emancipation, the freedom from Egypt, we begin by reenacting, by remembering what got us there to begin with. Because until we remember what got us there, we're going to be stuck there. We're going to be stuck there, we're going to keep revisiting it over and over again, which is exactly what we're seeing happen in our time. So, this is the story. Ela told us Yaakov, Yosef ben Shvatz Shana. We're not going to go into, but what does it mean? Ela told us Yaakov, Yosef. It's already a little rude. Yaakov has how many children? By the end of the story, he's got 12 children. This is the legacy of Yaakov, Yosef. Uh, hi, Dad. Hi, 11 of us also. What happened to the other 11? Ela told us Yaakov, Yosef. So, how do you read this Pusik? Ela told us Yaakov, dash. We interrupt that thought to bring to you, Yosef was 17 years old, Roez Achav. Is it Ela told us Yaakov, Yosef? Is it that the offspring, the legacy, the chronicles of Yaakov are Yosef? Or is here the chronicles of Yaakov? You want to know Yaakov's legacy? Here it is. The following story of Yosef and his brothers. How do you read this Pasuk? I think we might have investigated that in the past, but that sets the stage. Yosef, we're going to do this overview. This week I mean it. We're going to do an overview, and then we're going to get to some psukim. Bli neder. Be'ezra Sashem Izborach. Be'ezra Sashem. So, Yisrael Lahavas Yosef Mikol Banav. That's also instructive. We didn't get to it last week, but we started talking about Yaakov's name has changed to Yisrael. I left you with questions last week for next year. And the questions were, why do we have a repetition First the angel changes his name from Yaakov to Yisrael, and then we see it again at the end of the parsha. Hashem changes his name. That was question number one. Question number two was, why is Yaakov the only of the Avos who you're allowed to use his old name? Avraham, you can't call him Avram again. Sarah, you can't call her Sarai again. And yet, Yaakov, we call him Yaakov, not only Yisrael. Did anyone do their homework since last week? You're retired, people. You're tired. You have so much time to do the homework. Okay. That's for next year. So, a little, a little. I gave it till next year. It's true. The due date has not arrived yet. So, a little um, preview is that the other avos categorically changed their quality, their essence, their identity entirely changed. Yaakov carries a dual identity. There's the private individual Yaakov, and then there is the Yaakov as the father of the covenantal community with a greater destiny, and that's Yisrael. Yaakov is the individual on the run, in hiding, persecuted, fearful of his brother. Yaakov is the one of struggle, and Yisrael is the Jewish people, when we realize who we're meant to be. So when you understand the difference of the name Yaakov and Yisrael, then you can plug it in when you continue to read these parashios. When does the Torah refer to him as Yaakov, and when does it refer to him as Yisrael? So who loved Yosef more than his other children? The Yaakov, the private individual, the personal narrative? No. Yisrael Ahavas Yosef Mikol Banav. Says the Torah, it was not the limited individual, the private father person Yaakov, who loved Yosef, the Yisrael in him, the meta narrative, the one with a greater vision of the Jewish people and where they were going. That's the one who identified within Yosef something different than the rest of his children. Ben Zikun and he made him a ksonis pasim, karpas, we continue to invoke it. Here is the beginning of it all. The brothers, vayisnu'uoso, I spoke about this in shul two weeks ago. We spoke about hate, the FBI report from 2017, the increase in hate speech and hate crimes for the Jewish people, a third more hate crimes than the year before, and the Jews are, Jews and blacks are the most persecuted. We are the most targeted in this increase in, in hate crimes. We talked about how terrible hate is, how odious and how, how pernicious hate is, and that we have to rid hate. I told the story of Norman Frajman, who was here that morning, who was a survivor of both Maidanic and the Warsaw Ghetto, and I heard him on March of the Living. When we walked through Maidanic, he told the young students that he never uses the word hate, and he doesn't hate the Germans, he doesn't hate the Nazis. 
Because hate is what started it all. We can never ever employ that hate. So he asked, how could Leah be hated? Leah was hated. How could Leah be? Could Yaakov hate a Leah? Is that possible? So that was two weeks ago. Parsha. That was the drasha two weeks ago. We know that hate is so categorically terrible. Look what it does. Look what the result of hate is. And yet here it is. Vayisnuuoso. The brothers hate Yosef. This sibling rivalry. He has these dreams. He's favored by the father. He looks like he's tagged for greatness. They hate him. So much so do they hate him that, so much so that, they could not speak to him peacefully. That's a very clumsy sentence. We've investigated that more fully in the past as well. But I'll tell you, what is Lo Shalom? So some translate it, they could not speak a kind word to him. Others say they could not speak peacefully to him. Others say they could not speak to him on friendly terms. It's such a clumsy sentence, it's hard to entirely translate, or to translate it literally. So the Ibn Ezra says, It's not just that they couldn't talk about the issues they disagree about. It's not just that they couldn't debate politics or gun control or abortion or Supreme Court justices or peace in Israel. It's not just that they couldn't talk about the things they knew they can't talk about. Lo yechlu dabro says the Ibn Ezra, afilu l'shalom. They had such animosity and tension and hatred between them, they couldn't even talk about the things they agree about. L'shalom, they couldn't even say shalom aleichem. They couldn't even say hello, good Shabbos. Shalom aleichem, how are you? These are brothers. Sometimes brothers get together and this topic's off the table. I mentioned two weeks ago this professor who shared with us his father and his uncle on Thanksgiving and how can they be in the same room? They can't even talk. Dwight Eisenhower's suggestion, when you have a problem, enlarge it. If you missed it, it was the Drusha two weeks ago. You're lost. So, but these brothers, okay, it's one thing to get to a level where you say, it's a sad thing. That you can't agree, disagree agreeably. If you can't even disagree respectfully, that's a sad thing. Why shouldn't we be able to have an intellectual debate conversation, try to persuade one another respectfully, using arguments? Why shouldn't we be able to have a fair and honest debate about taxes and gun control and moving the embassy or whatever topic is the topic of, of the day? Okay, but you can't. That's just the temperature is so high that people are unable to, they're too emotionally connected, they're unable. But to not be able to even talk about the things we know we agree about? Two brothers come from the same family, the same home, same background, share the same destiny, who have infinitely more in common than they have that divides them. But Ad Kedekach, things had spiraled so downward. Lo yachlu dabrol afilu lishalom. They couldn't even say, good morning, how are you, good Shabbos, shalom aleichem. That's how, that's how bitterly, that's how low it had sunk. Rabbi Yonison Eibshitz has a sefer on Chumas called Teferis Yonason. And he has a different pshat. He says they couldn't speak to him in, to peace. What does it mean? He says when we disagree with people, we withdraw from them. And we stop speaking with them. Why? Because we see them as the other. They're different than us. They believe differently. They think differently. They observe differently. They look different. They're apart. They're the other. And as our communication breaks down, the divider rises up stronger and stronger. So because so they hated him. And therefore they saw him as the other. And now they couldn't even say hello. If they were talking, maybe they could have reconciled. Maybe they could have figured it out. Maybe the brothers could have said, look, this is how you make us feel when you carry yourself in that way or when dad treats you differently than he treats us. But lo yachlu dabro shalom, when there's such a breakdown that there's not even casual conversation, there's no connection, there's no love, there's no loyalty. So then we get to an episode of sinas chinam to the degree that we, that we see it, to the degree that it absolutely falls apart. It falls apart as it does in Arab Parsha. There's an amazing, there's an amazing Rashi here. Rashi says, It's an incredible Rashi. Rashi says that within this, within this essential criticism of the brothers, there's a little bit of a subtle compliment too. And what's the compliment? At least one thing they were not. Duplicitous. Because you know what the Torah has no tolerance for? Echad b'peh ve'echad b'lev. 
When you talk a big game with your mouth, but you feel differently in your heart. So you see the person in shul, you know what the opposite of, this, of, of what this episode is? Maybe equally bad, maybe even worse. When you see someone in shul and you give a big hug and how are you, what's going on, and we're just thinking about you, and then you go to your Shabbos table and you talk all about them and you badmouth them and you tell everyone how you can't stand them. Echad echad When you're duplicitous, when you're absolute fake and a fraud and a hypocrite, when you say one thing with your mouth and you believe another thing in your heart, that the Torah has no tolerance for. So much so that Rashi offers a compliment. It's terrible the brothers hated Yosef. It's absolutely terrible. But at least they told him they hated him. They didn't act hypocritically. They didn't pretend they loved him and then they went to have coffee and they all bad-mouthed him and they all ganged up on him and they all gossiped about him. At least they were honest. At least they were, at least they were direct. And this is what the Chazal say. Torah has no tolerance for duplicity. Our inside has to match our outside. Our outside has to match our inside. We learn this from the Kalim of the Beis HaMikdash, of the Mishkan, the Aram. It's layered with gold on the inside, layered with gold on the outside. Gold on the outside, I understand, everybody's going to see. But if the structure is made of wood, what do I need the gold on the inside? So that's what our rabbis deduce. Tamachacham has to be tacho kaboro. Your inside and your outside have to match. If that's how you feel in your heart, tell the person. Now again, the failure was the breakdown in conversation and communication. Lo yachlu dabro l'shalom. So you hate him. Good. There are times you hate people. It's not right. You should overcome it. One should never hate. They should dislike. They should acknowledge differences. Okay, but there are times that you withdraw, that you feel animosity towards someone. So what do you do then? So don't be echad bepev echad lev. Don't be duplicitous. But also don't do what the brothers did, which is withdraw, see the person as the other, totally have absolutely ignore them. What's the right solution? Don't be a fake, but don't also be an enemy. What's the right solution? Reconcile. Talk. Be dabro shalom. Give a shalom aleichem and say, here's what I hate about you. You got to change. Now, here's, here's what you mean with someone you say, I want to reconcile. I want to agree to disagree. I want to figure out how we can coexist. I want to be able to have a relationship despite our differences. Despite our differences, how can we coexist? Because we have to. Tocho kibaro. One of the things that Kodesh Baruch Hu hates, it's a Gemara in Pesachim Kuf Yud Gimel. Echad mishlosha shakodesh Baruch Hu sonan hu hamadaber echad bepev echad belev. One of the people that a Kodesh Baruch Hu can't stand, Kodesh Baruch Hu can't stand, is a duplicitous person who speaks one way in their heart and one way with their and one way with their mouth. So that's what's going on over here. Hatred. Yosef has these dreams, he tells his fathers these dreams, he tells his brothers these dreams. All it does is increase the jealousy, the animosity, the tension. And one day the brothers are out shepherding, and Yaakov sends Yosef out. Go check on your brothers. How are they doing? They're out in Shechem, they're out in Nablus. It's a dangerous neighborhood. Go check out what's going on. Go see how they're doing. Yosef is looking for his brothers and an Ish, this anonymous figure. Who is this Ish? We've talked about this Ish in the past. According to some, he's an angel. Is it a man? Who is this Ish? This GPS system which is going to help Yosef find out where he is and figure out where his brothers are. Again, we've discussed that in the, in the past. We've also discussed in the past, we're not going to get into now, that we understand why did Yosef not contact his father all those years? According to Rav Benun, according to some, Yosef assumes that his father's in on it. Last Yosef saw his father, all he knows is, his father said, go check on your brothers. Next thing you know, the brothers take him, they're ready to kill him, they throw him in a pit, they finally sell him, he's in Egypt, he's looking back, he's sitting in a cell, he has a lot of time in that caravan, even with the pleasant smices down to Egypt, to ask himself, what just unfolded? How did this happen? What's going on here? And the only, the most logical conclusion is, not just my jealous brothers concocted this plan, but who's the one who sent me out to look for them knowing we don't get along? Who led me right into their hands, right into their trap? In other words, Yosef doesn't have the luxury of reading Chumash. He doesn't know afterwards they take the coat, they dip it in blood, they go back to Yaakov, they, play, they, they deceive him and say it was an act. We have the narrative, we know the rest of the story. Live it through Yosef's eyes. Yosef's eyes, he doesn't have that privilege. He doesn't know that part of the story. All he thinks is, 
Abba, Tati, Daddy, I don't know what he called Yaakov, but he sent me, he sent me to go check on my brothers. Next thing you know, my brothers are selling me to Egypt. I guess my father orchestrated with my brothers to get rid of me. So I guess nobody needs to hear from me because nobody wants me. So that's very logical. It's a very compelling pshat. Very compelling interpretation of this, of this episode. They're ready to kill him. Ruvain saves Yosef from the plot to kill him. Ruvain says, you can't. He says, uh, instead throw him in the, in the pit. And they uh, strip him of his multicolored coat. And they come back, they take him out of the pit. This is an extraordinary pit. It's got snakes and scorpions, but Yaakov, uh, Yosef survives them. We've also discussed, I think, last year, the, the um, height of the pit. How do we know a menorah, 20 amas, in the pit, snakes and scorpions, there's connections. You can listen to last week's class, last year's class. Yosef is sold down, and they go back to Yaakov, and they lie, and they give him the, the coat. Now, pardon the interruption, but our story... No, I'm not, not in the Shir, in the Chumash. Pardon the interruption. Our story is interrupted by a tangential story. And what is that tangential story? Vayi ba'isahi. Now you got to love this. Vayi ba'isahi. And it was at that time. And Rashi tells us, what do you mean at that time? Everybody was busy. What was going on? Vayi ba'isahi. What's going on? It's at that time. Everybody's busy. Perak Lamaches. Pasuk. Aleph. What's everyone busy with? So the Medrash says, at that time, everybody was busy. What's everyone busy with? Everyone's got their own life. Yaakov is busy mourning for Yosef, inconsolably. Yosef is busy mourning his fate. Reuven is busy mourning his lost opportunity, which we'll come back to. Yehuda's busy choosing a wife, and Hashem was busy creating Mashiach. That's the Medrash. Every, we're interrupting that story because everybody's occupied, preoccupied, everybody's busy. And what's Hashem busy with? Hashem is laying the seeds for Mashiach. How is He laying the seeds for Mashiach? Through this incredible story that He sets in motion, the process that leads to Yehuda's marriage to Tamar, which results through this most scandalous, salacious story and episode, results in more scandalous, salacious episodes. Lot and his daughters, Yehuda and Tamar, Rus and Boaz, David and Bacheva. Mashiach has the worst Shidduch resume of all time. <laughs> Nobody is dating Mashiach. Maybe that's why he hasn't come. We're also judgmental. Nobody's willing to nobody's willing to go on one date with him and to welcome him. Why did Hashem why did Hashem design Mashiach's Yichus or lack of Yichus so much so? It should be, where does Mashiach come from? Avinu, through Moshe Rabbeinu, through David Amel, through, through, you know, Rav Moshe, through the Rebbe, through the Gedol Yisrael. Untainted, unblemished, perfect yichas. It's exactly the opposite. Why is that? Why was that by design? For another time. Awesome. Awesome. We have a whole shir on that. It might even be online, but we have a whole shir on that. That's also for another time. So everyone's busy, says the Medrash. Yudah's busy and Yaakov's busy and Yosef's busy and Ruvain's busy and what's Hashem busy with? We interrupt the story to tell you how Hashem was planting the seeds already here in a very salacious way but the seeds of Mashiach. And here we have the story of Yehuda and Tamar. We're not going to go into in depth but we know the story. Yehuda's two sons are married. They die prematurely. Daughters don't have children. Tamar is desperate for continuity and lineage. She dresses herself up. She attracts Yehuda's attention. This is the whole story we skip when we're young in school. Yehuda pays attention. Let's just say euphemistically, Yehuda pays attention. She's pregnant. He then accuses his daughter-in-law of being promiscuous. She says, I'm just saying that whoever these things belong to, that's the father of this child. Yehuda understands that she's willing to die and not embarrass him, reveal his identity. So Yehuda says the famous immortal words, Sad Kamimeni, she is more righteous than I am. Wow. What she did, how far she went, she's more righteous than I. And Yehuda saves her, and now we're back to our story. The Yosef Hurad Mitzrayim, page 212. So we were interrupted with the story of Yehuda and, and Tamar, of which there's much more to talk about, but then we're back to our story. Yosef is brought down to Mitzrayim, he comes to the house of Potiphar, and he's unbelievably successful. 
Yosef tells Potiphar, you got to buy this stock, invest in this real estate. He runs a hedge fund out of Potiphar's home. Next thing you know, Potiphar is one of the wealthiest men in Egypt. His home is on fire. It's being blessed. Yosef is the great rainmaker of Egypt. He is absolutely killing it. Until Potiphar's wife relentlessly and ruthlessly is in pursuit. She's so attractive. Yosef is this handsome young man who everything he touches turns to gold. And the wife of Potiphar is so drawn. Medrash tells us partially because Potiphar himself is impotent. Potiphar himself is a sris. He's unable to uh, fulfill his marital obligations combined with Yosef's attractiveness. And Aisha's Potiphar just relentlessly, relentlessly, relentlessly is propositioning Yosef. And that's where we left off last year that we're going to pick up how Yosef resists that relentless uh, pursuit from, from her, summons superhuman strength to go against his nature, to overcome his instinct, to want to give in. And he's able to run out and we'll see that in a moment. She falsely accuses him when she is rejected. She falsely accuses him. It's very... Uh, in our Me Too era, where first of all, victims of Me Too can be women. In this case, Yosef is a victim of Me Too. He's absolutely sexually harassed by the wife of Potiphar. Men too can be victims of Me Too. But we also, through our parsha, are reminded that on the one hand, the movement is excellent in that it's holding people accountable who deserve to be held accountable. Just as Brandeis said, sunlight is the greatest disinfectant. And the internet and the opportunity to shine sunlight is to disinfect society from those who deserve to be disinfected. But on the other hand, our parsha is also a reminder of what can happen with false accusations. How easy it is when a person is spurned, when their advances are rejected, to turn it around and say, I was harassed. That's what the wife of Potiphar does, and Yosef suffers as a result. He's thrown into the pit, he's thrown into prison, and there... We have the Saramashkim and the Saraofim who share their dreams with him. What precipitates their sharing their dreams with him? What does he say? Why are they sharing their dreams? Yosef says incredible words. Yosef's sitting in prison and he sees these two fabissin and miserable people and he turns and he says... Hey, Fabissina guys, what, what are you so down about? What do you look so despondent about? What's going on in your lives? How can I make it better? You know what day of the year that was? Chazal, tell us. You know what day of the year it was that Yosef asked those two that question? It was Rosh Hashanah. And you know, how did they know that? We have a Masorah, we have a tradition. Gemara records that that day was Rosh Hashanah. What it means is, how do you create a new beginning in your life? By asking someone else, Madua Pnechem Ra'im Hayom. In other words, Yosef doesn't create a new beginning by retreating to the corner of the prison cell, wallowing in his troubles. He had every right to sit there and cry and moan and bemoan what had happened to him. Yosef would have every right for self-pity. We would all excuse him. His family rejected him. They tried to kill him. They sold him. He reinvented himself. He's falsely accused. He's languishing in prison. Who would blame Yosef if he retreats to the corner and simply, simply a self-pity? But you don't create a new Rosh Hashanah. You don't get a new beginning in life when you go to the corner with self-pity. How do you get a new beginning in life? When you go outside yourself and you say, When you see other people suffering and you say, How can I make you better? How can I make your life better? How can I... Relieve your suffering. How can I put a smile on your face? Madua Panechem, hey Fabissana dudes, why are you so down? Why are you so sad? How can I make you happier? How can I lift? That was his that was his Rosh Hashanah. Okay, that's our overview. We even left ourselves a few minutes to look at some sukkim. So here we go. We left off last year, I checked. Perak Lamates Pasuk Tes. Chapter thirty nine, verse nine. It appears in the Old Scroll Stone Chumash on page. 214. Page 214. We ended last year with the phenomenal pshat. has a on top. Shashelis is that unusual trump that only appears a handful of times in the Torah. Three times. Thank you for tolerating that. So why the shashelis? And we left, left, left off last year where did Yosef find that superhuman strength to overcome, to walk away, to say, no, I won't give in? 
Shalshelas. What's a Shalshelas? That's the name of the trap. What is a Shalshelas? It's a chain. Yosef sees himself as part of a chain. He says, you know, if I lived on my own, if all it was were me, maybe I'd give in. But you know, I have a father. I have a grandfather. I have a last name. No headline of the, of the Mitzrayim Gazette is going to say that Avram and Yitzchak and Yaakov's son, grandson and great-grandson, slept with the wife of Potiphar, a married woman. Shashelas, vayimaein, the presence of that trup is telling us what did Yosef tap into that gave him the strength, the tenacity, the courage, the conviction to resist her advance? Because of Shashelas. He saw himself as part of a chain. It's critically important with our own children to impress upon them, you don't live isolated, you're not independent, you don't live in a vacuum, you didn't come out of nowhere. You have a family, you have a name, you have a reputation. Not from a guilty perspective, but there's a value, there's a, there's a notion of pasnish. It's pasnish for you. Do you know who you are? You're a child of royalty, you're a prince, you're a princess. You have a family, that's who we are, our integrity, it's how we behave. Know where you come from? Do you know where you come from? When we have a shashelas, when we see ourselves not just as on our own, not just as in a vacuum, not just as isolated, but we're part of something bigger than ourselves, it empowers us. It empowers us. There's a lot of research that talks about that. Children whose parents shared with them their family narrative, they understand the shashelas, the chain, the bigger picture of where they come from, they do better in life. They're able to overcome obstacles and challenges better in life than children who have no idea their parents, their grandparents, they don't know their story. I don't know where you were born, I don't know where you came from, I don't know where you went to school, I don't know anything. And even within that narrative, there's a lot of research that was done by a Dr. Duke. I spoke about this one year on, on Pesach and connected it to the, the Seder. It was actually amazing. And I then printed it on H.com and the author of this research, I saw it in an article in the New York Times, saw the H article, someone must have sent it to him and he wrote me a whole beautiful email which was very validating that, yeah, his research, working with the Pesach story, worked very beautifully. It, was, it enhanced his Seder, which was incredibly uh, validating and meaningful to me. What was his research? That knowing your family narrative makes you stronger, and the strongest family narrative to know is not the family narrative that everything was always great, nor is it the family narrative that everything was always terrible. It's what he coins the oscillating family narrative. Things were great, then Hitler rose to power. Then we reinvented ourselves in America, then... The economy turned. Then, the, the, well, then when children understand the highs and lows, the ups and downs, the rhythm, the f- oscillation of their family narrative, they fare better in life. They're empowered, they're strengthened, they do better. Kim, his wife was a teacher, and she shared about which children in her classroom did better, and he decided to study it, and that was the conclusion. The children who knew where they come from and what their family narrative was, that's the pshat in Vayima'in. Vayima'in is a shashelas. Where does Yosef have the tenacity to persevere? If he were on his own, isolated, alone, independent, had no name, didn't represent anyone, maybe he would have given in, because who cares? But when you say, no, I'm not fighting this on my own. You know who's pushing, you know whose fingertips are on my back, who are pushing me forward? My father, my mother, my grandfather, my grandmother, my great-grandfather, my great-grandmother. I have generations who are pushing me, whose fingertips are on my back, pushing me forward and carrying me, that's why ma'in. Pasuk test, that's what we're up to. So what happens? She keeps putting her advance on him. And he turns to her and he says, there's no one greater in this house than me, than I. And he's denied me nothing but you, since you're his wife. He gives me access to everything. I know all the passwords, I know all the codes. I help myself to the bar, I help myself to the humidor. I've got access to the schwitz, to the sun. I got it all. Only thing I can't have is you, and that's understandable. You are his wife. So how could I possibly perpetrate this evil to whom? Bechatasi to whom? Lelokim. Whoa, that's a very different end of the sentence that I would have expected. What you would have expected, he's given me everything. He's so good to me. The only thing he's not giving me is you because he's your wife. So how could I possibly do this to? To him. To Potiphar. Why does it end? How could I possibly do this? V'chatasi to whom? To? To Lelokim. Why does it end that way? So, I saw a pshat. I don't even know who this is from. 
in the Sefer. I'm sorry. Let's look at uh, the Svarna. It comes from the Svarna. Look at the Svarna. Zog the Svarna. Svarna says, Ki mosach basher atishto, b'inyan ha'ishus bavad chasachos chamimeni, harag dol hazos l'shalem ra'atachas tova. How could I do, how could I repay Potiphar? He's been so good to me. How could I repay him by doing something so horrible to him? This is a lesson that Karas Atov says this for now. Yosef feels such gratitude to Potiphar. How could I pay back Potiphar who's been so good to me? So the Sefer says, one second, has a question on the Svarna. Who is better to whom? Yosef to Potiphar or Potiphar to Yosef? Yosef feels so indebted to Potiphar? Potiphar hired Yosef. True, he gave him a chance. And what did Yosef do for Potiphar? He made him an incredibly wealthy man. He brought enormous wealth and success to his home. Who owes whom? Yosef says, I'm so indebted, he was so good to me. How could I do this? He was so good to you. You were so good to him. You brought him outstanding success, enormous wealth. So what do you see from here? The importance and the power of Hakar Satov. You're right, proportionally Yosef did much more for Potiphar than Potiphar did for Yosef. That doesn't take away his obligation or responsibility in Hakar Satov. Hakar Satov is not a quid pro quo. It's not commensurate. Well, you did something for me worth a 10, but I did something for you worth a 100. So now there's a net that you owe me gratitude of 90. And I owe you zero gratitude. Right? If you understood gratitude as quid pro quo, well, you did something nice for me that's worth a 10. I did something nice for you that's worth a 100. You owe me 90 gratitude points. You owe me 90 thank yous. And how many do I owe you? Zero. That's not how gratitude works. You see from here, it says this wonderful safer. You see from here within this Svarna. The way gratitude works is not quid pro quo and it's not a net. It's that you did something for me with 10 gratitude points and I did something for you with 100. I owe you 10 thank yous and you owe me 100 thank yous. But I'm never done owing you those thank yous. It doesn't get deduced or reduced. It doesn't get subtracted. Because Yosef feels such gratitude. L'shalim ra tachas tova. You've been so good to me. How could I do something terrible to you? But why does it end? Lo chatasi v'chatasi l'lokim. I can't sin against God. And why doesn't it end v'chatasi l'adoni? So he says, maybe based on, maybe based on a Mishnah. Chazal say, whoever is kofer betovaso, whoever is ungrateful to their friend, in the end becomes ungrateful to God. Meaning, if you lose the attribute of God, gratitude, if you lose the capacity to identify when things have been good to you, people have been good to you, goodness has been done for you, ultimately you'll lose that capacity from God as well. If you don't notice the small things, the little things, the things that people do for you, you're not going to notice the things that the invisible Rebbe does for you. So Yosef is living this experience and saying, you know, true, Potiphar was good to me. I can't be Mashalim Ratachas Tova. But Chatasi Lelokim, who is the one who's really orchestrated everything to be good to me? Whatever goodness I have, Potiphar is a puppet for the goodness. Hashem has chosen him to be the conduit, the means through which I receive that goodness. But whatever goodness I have, really, the puppeteer, the one who's pulling the strings to coordinate and choreograph all that goodness, is Hashem. So who would be the one I was really sinning against if I acted immorally, unethically, unjustly? That would ultimately be a slap in the face too, ultimately to Hashem. Another interpretation is, Ki Egyptian maybe practiced polygamy or polyam, polymorph, whatever the title word is in our time, open marriages. So maybe they had an open marriage. Maybe Potiphar had his challenges as a husband. So he allowed Ishus Potiphar. So Yosef says, yeah, maybe in Egyptian culture that has a moral relativism, there's such a thing as an open marriage. Maybe within a morally relativistic society, who knows? Maybe her advance is not in violation of her marriage. Maybe it has his consent. I answer to a higher authority. I don't answer to the morally relative society of America and definitions of relationships and so on and so forth. I answer to a higher authority 
that defines a higher morality and a higher ethic. And Yosef says to a Hashem who's been so good to me, which is also an incredible statement of Akar Satov. Hashem has been so good to me? My brothers tried to kill me. Then they threw me in a pit where I had to navigate snakes and scorpions. Then I went into a caravan where I was sold to Egypt, where I'm living all alone in exile, in a foreign land, in a foreign language, starting from scratch with nothing. Hashem, you're so good to me. So good to me. It's reminiscent of our amazing survivors. So many of them at the end of their lives say, HaKadosh Baruch Hu was so good to me. Look at the family, look at the life I've built, look at the, the Parnas I earned. Yeah, but look at that. Compared to everything you lost, do you really feel Hashem is so good to you? Yeah, Hashem is so good to me. Yosef, the word HaKaras HaTov, to be Makir Tov. My Grace Hour spoke about this the other night at the Shloshim for his beloved wife, Dani Allah Shalom, a 33-year-old mother who passed away in our community a month ago, an extraordinary woman. And he talked about how she excelled at HaKaras HaTov. Gratitude, HaKaras HaTov does not translate to gratitude. HaKaras HaTov means HaKara, to identify the good. HaKara, to identify the good. He shared he had gone through notes and letters. She, she wrote thank you notes to everyone. Incredible thank you notes to everyone for the smallest things. He found a thank you note she had written to him at the end of 35 days of radiation treatment. And she wrote a whole thank you note to her husband for what he had done for her, for the home, for their children, a thank you note. Hakara Satov, no matter what you're going through, thankful, gratitude, that's how you feel at the end of radiation treatment? That's what you feel like? Yeah, the capacity for Hakara Satov the capacity to be makir, identify, see, acknowledge, call out, and express gratitude for, for the good. That's Yosef. Hashem is, so good. Hashem is so good to you? Yeah, Hashem is so good to me. I survived. I didn't die and my brothers didn't kill me. I made it to Egypt. I've been thriving and flourishing in the psalm. Everything I touch turns to gold. Hashem is so good to me. I'm not going to do what's relatively moral here in Egypt. I answer to the higher authority. Chatasi lelokim. I can't violate the higher authority of Hashem up above. I can't violate the higher authority of Hashem up above. Continuing, a few more minutes. Every day she's relentlessly pursuing him. He doesn't listen. He doesn't give in. He refuses. He refuses. By the way, he refuses. She says, just a snuggle, just a cuddle. Uh, okay, I won't violate my marriage. I just saw an article that said, I think it was 50% of American men don't think kissing another woman is an act of infidelity. I don't mean a peck on the cheek. Right? So, again, that's the moral relativism. She says, it's not cheating. It's not cheating. It's not cheating. Well, just... No. Yosef refuses. Lo shama elaha, lishkav etzla. Lishkav etzla means even belitashmash. Even a lower level. Yosef was in the correct 50%. Who understood the definition? Svarno goes even further. Not only lishkav etzla, lios ima. Says the Svarno, what's lios ima? Biyichud. She says, I just, I want some emotional intimacy. Can't we just be in a room and lock the door? We won't even touch each other. Just lock the door. Confide in each other. Feel we're in a room together. Some emotional space. Emotional intimacy. Leos ima. She says, let's just be together. Seclude ourselves for 24 hours. Let's just be together. And Yosef says, no. Not even that. I answer to a higher authority. I answer to a higher authority. There's right, there's wrong. I will not violate that line. As tempting as it is, as inviting as it is, as, as much of an opportunity as it is, as little I think anyone would ever find out. Chatasi lelokim. There's one person who knows everything, sees everything, records everything, and I can't violate him. Leos ima. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. So now, after describing the background of the relentless pursuit over and over and how he withstands it, now the Torah tells us. It was that day. What was that day? What was special about that day? Chazal said that day was Shabbos. What was special about that day? Rashi says, It was a non-Jewish holiday. It was an idolatrous holiday in Egypt. It was December 25th and everybody went to church that day. So what happens to the wife of Potiphar? Why 
So Mr. Potiphar is all dressed up in his finest. Little Potiphar children are all dressed up to go to church. It's that sacred day for them. The wife of Potiphar says, this is the perfect day. Because the landscaper's not coming today. The cable guy's not coming today. The housekeeper won't be here today. Everybody's off today. And my own family, they're going to church for the day. So you know what she says to Mr. Potiphar? I'm not feeling well. I'm, you know what? I'm going to stay home. You go. You go. The one person who's coming is the Jewish person who's not observing the 25th. So he's the Jewish. The accountant is showing up to work that day. But everybody else, they're celebrating. So she organized, orchestrates things to be alone with him in the house. This was it. This was the big day. He's rebuffed her efforts. Maybe she thinks he's afraid. Potiphar will walk in on them. He'll be caught. This is the chance. There's no cameras yet on the property. This is their chance to be alone. She sets it all up. She orchestrates everything. So Torah tells us, by the way, let me go back. She orchestrates things. What's Yosef's attitude that day? He comes la'asos melachto. What does la'asos melachto mean? To balance the books? What is this? To reconcile the accounts? Zakhtar Ashi Rabu Shmuel Chadam Melachto Mamash Vachadam Melasos Trach of Ima. El Shanirolo de Musta Yukno Shal Aviv Kedi Isa Mesechis Saita. Rab and Shmuel have a debate. What did, what did, what did, what did Yosef come to do that day? What does Lasos Melachto mean? One means, says, it means literally, Lasos Melachto. He had to reconcile the books. He had accounting to do. He had investments to make. He came to do work. But the other says, no, Lasos Melachto means Yosef was at the end. He, he was at the end of his willpower. He was ready to give in. He was absolutely ready and about to give in. So how did he overcome? So the Gemara Sota tells us. He saw the Musta Yukno Shal Aviv. He saw his father's image. I mentioned last year, my brother's Pshat, that Yosef, from when he was a child until now, never looked in a mirror. A mirror was a luxury. It's not today you can go buy a mirror for $3. A mirror was a, was a, um, a luxury item. Where does he see a mirror? In this bedroom. She grabs him. It's the first time he looks in the mirror. Who does he see when he looks in the mirror? We know that Yosef looks exactly like his father. He goes, whoa, he's taking him back. He's got a beard. Maybe some of his hair is turning gray. Now he's a young man. It's not turning gray yet. He's not a rabbi. So he looks in the mirror and he sees he looks like his father. And he sees his father. And all of a sudden that's it. Shashelas. He's part of something bigger. I can't do that to my father. That's not who I am. I shared with you another shot. You know what he's the it's not that he saw an image of his father. No. He saw his own image, Shel Aviv. Yosef's own childhood. His father said, Yosef, you know, you could be this. Yosef, you're going to be that. Yosef, you have the potential for this. Yosef, you have the capacity for that. Yosef, Yaakov's, Yosef's whole childhood, Yaakov painted a picture for Yosef of who Yosef could be. And now in that moment of truth, you know what Yosef saw? He saw that image, that picture that his father had always painted of who he could be. His own image, but Shel Aviv, of his father. Now last year I left off, and I fear that we're at the same point again. But I left off with a question that none of you even remember, let alone did you do your homework. Sam Sofer has a question. He wants to know, Sam Sofer on Parshas Vayichi, but he wants to know, where was this Demusti Yukno when the brothers were ready to kill Yosef? Why didn't they see an image of their father? Where was the Demusti Yukno when they sold him into slavery? Why didn't they get to see this image? If Yaakov's larger-than-life image continued to radiate for Yosef, even years later in Egypt, why didn't they see the image of Yaakov? Why didn't they continue to hear his lessons ringing in their ears, even all this while later? That's the question of Chassam Sofa. So Chassam Sofa gives an answer, but I want to suggest, I guess, in closing, even though I had so much more to talk about, including today's Yutes Kislev. And the original Yutes Kislev was on a Tuesday. And I wanted to talk about the Alter Rebbe, the Balatanya, Yutes Kislev, and where that comes up in the story about Hachutza. The Hachutza, Maina Hachutza. So much to talk about. <coughs> anyway, but I'll answer this question because I can't leave you two years in a row going with the same cliffhanger. So, I'll tell you my answer to the question is that there are a lot of Yetzirahs that the Musti Yukno can offset. I want to eat that chocolate cake, but I see my wife's image telling me you've had enough chocolate cake. Don't eat the chocolate cake, it's not. I see my cardiologist, I see my endocrinologist. I see Demusta Yukno of all my doctors, and I see the Demusta Yukno of the uh, lab technician in the lab report drawing my blood, the phlebotomist, is that what they're called? And Demusta Yukno of all those people, I pass on the chocolate cake. Good. That's the Eitzahara, Demusta Yukno can overcome. And I want to speak Lashonara. 
but I see my Rebbe who was so good and said never speak Lashon Hara. And I want to even look at an image I shouldn't be looking at the internet. So I see the Musti Yukno. There's a lot of Yetzaharas that the Musti Yukno, if I see the image, I can hear the ringing sound of the positive influences on my life. But there's a Yetzahara that is so strong that even at the Musti Yukno doesn't stop it. And which one is that? Sinner. Hatred. Hatred blinds. Hatred renders deaf. Hatred blocks all the messages and all the images and all the influences. When one is filled with hatred, there's nothing left. Ava love, love blinds. Avram is blinded by love. He gets up, he gets the donkey, he doesn't rely on others. He's driven by love. And the inverse is Sinam Mikakelis Sashura. So you see that hate is such a powerful force. It blinds us from being influenced by others. So that's why, yeah, this Yet Sahara Yosef employs the Mutyuknoshalavov. He can see and he can continue to hear his father. Why didn't the brothers hear it? Because when you're filled and consumed by hatred, from the rage of hatred, then you can't hear, you can't see anything. All right, we'll pick up again from here, Mirza Hashem, next year.